paradox, derived from two Greek words, para meaning contrary to opinion, uh, contrary to doxon meaning opinion, so the definition, contrary to opinion. More recently, it was defined as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is likely true. If you've seen the movie Inception, you know the stairs are a paradox in the architecture of a dream. If you're familiar with M.C. Escher, you uh, know what an artistic paradox is. In literature, George Bernard Shaw wrote the paradox, What a pity that youth must be wasted on the young. Or Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything but temptation. It's a paradox. I bring the little vocabulary lesson to your attention because a paradox is exactly where we have found ourselves. These past few weeks together, we've been in this series called Adulting, and we've been trying how to learn how to grow up, not just grow old. And we've talked about a number of areas in your life that you need to grow up and not just grow old in. If you missed any of those messages, you can find them online. This morning, we're going to have a conversation about faith. And faith is somewhat paradoxical because the Bible teaches that we're supposed to be like children in our faith. So we have to grow down in order to grow up. It's a paradox. To that point, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Luke chapter 18 is what you need to find. Don't know if you picked up on this yet, but this entire series has been from the writings of Luke. You're welcome. Uh... Only three verses we got to discuss this morning, starting in 15. It reads, One day some parents brought their little children to Jesus so He could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering Him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to Me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us in these verses. We've come to hear from you. I ask that you do what only you can do and provide clarity on your words. Help lives be changed. Let us leave this place one step closer to your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Reader's Digest recently wrote an article about beliefs you used to hold as children, but that you no longer hold on to as adults. They wrote things like, if, uh, as a child, you used to believe if you swallowed a watermelon seed, it would grow a watermelon in your stomach, which a pregnant lady could really jack a kid up with that, right? Like, why is your belly so big? Accidentally swallowed a watermelon seed, and this is what happens. Uh, In a related story, a friend of mine cut off his thumb, part of his thumb, so he told another friend of ours whose daughter sucked her thumb, he told her that he sucked his thumb too long, and his thumb fell off. And so if you ever need him for hire, because your kids, he's available for a prize. Uh, Another thing that you used to believe as a kid, white cows produced white milk, and dark cows produced chocolate milk. Anybody else believe that? Am I the only one? Okay. Uh, 
if you, uh, I used to believe that if you dug a hole in the ground, you could end up in China. And in fact, the other day I went out into my backyard and my kids were digging a hole and I was like, what are you doing? They're like, we're trying to get to China. I was like, oh, this belief must be hereditary. So <laughs> this is not good. I'm not contributing much to the gene pool, apparently. Uh, matter of fact, my dad told me that if uh, you drink coffee, it put hair on your chest, which is why mom didn't drink coffee. And did, anybody, did you guys get told that? And okay, I want to make sure I wasn't the only one that believed that. Um, you young kids won't know anything about this, but I know some parents who told their kids that if the ice cream truck was playing music, it meant they were out of ice cream. And so, well played, well played. So these stories being considered, isn't it interesting that the Bible teaches that we need the faith of a child? Because children have faith in many things, right? When you were a kid, didn't you believe that your dad could do anything? Didn't you have arguments on the playground about the things that your dad can do versus the things that their dad could do? I thought my dad could do anything until I found out he couldn't, you know? I know... I know my son used to believe I could do anything, and then we went deer hunting, and the biggest buck I'd ever seen in my entire life walked into about 20 yards, and I missed, and he was genuinely concerned and said, Dad, why, why'd you miss? And so I had to tell him the truth. I had to tell him. It, it was the bow. It, it, was, it wasn't me, something, the string, and then... To keep up the charade, I had to go buy a new bow. <laughs> Laura was not happy about that. That did not go over well. So uh, that's a whole thing. But uh, according to Luke, this is, this is the kind of faith that you're supposed to have. Childlike faith. This is the faith that God is after. Here's how you can write it down. Our faith must be childlike, not childish. Our faith needs to be childlike, not childish. And of course, there's a difference. Paul clarifies it in one of the letters that he wrote, 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I gave up childish ways. Now, what I find so compelling about that is nobody had to teach you what it means to be a child. Have you thought about that before? Nobody had to teach you how to think like a child, to reason like a child. That all just came natural. But when you became an adult, that's different, isn't it? It's not like you turned a certain age, and that very moment you immediately thought like an adult and acted like an adult. Now in your teenage mind, you think you do. Just ask any teenager. They think they're an adult. But the truth is, on your sweet 16, on your quinceanera, you didn't magically start thinking like an adult. And Paul says that uh, when I became an adult, I had to consciously give up childish ways. In other words, it wasn't my natural inclination to be an adult. To reason like an adult takes a concerted effort. Which, to be fair, on some level, you already know that's true. Because you've met some childish adults. Furthermore, you can look back on your own life to when you were a teenager and think, what was I doing? 
Doc Martens and Lucky Jeans and starter jackets with hairspray. Like, what was I even thinking? And I don't know, because there's a difference between being childlike and childish. And Jesus is making the distinction that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to have a faith that's childlike. Well, what does that even mean? I think three things. Number one, to become childlike in your faith means you have to have a complete sense of wonder. Jot that down. Complete wonder. Childlike faith means you have a worshipful awe for who God is and what He's done. To put that in perspective, just in the time we'll be together right now, like the time that I'll be speaking to you, your body will generate roughly 10 billion new cells. The number is 300 million per minute by most estimates. Your body is feverishly working at killing off old, ineffective cells and creating new, healthy ones. While you're sitting there, you will have blinked roughly 500 times. Some of that is due to the fact that I'm so pale that you can't look directly at me. And we got these new spotlights and it make matters worse. And I apologize. We already established the gene pool thing for me. But it'd be worse if my kids were up here. You know, I... I jokingly pray for snow all the time, but you've got to be careful about that. Those kids are so white, you'd lose them out in the snow, so uh, they're darn near invisible. But uh, what was I talking about? Blinking 500 times. You'll blink, and what that does is it spreads uh, a film, an oil, mucus membrane, a cocktail of secretions across your eye to keep your eye from drying out. Furthermore, in order to facilitate your eyelid muscles being able to blink, you will have pumped roughly 330 milliliters of oxygen into your lungs, which travels through your bloodstream, and depending on your resting heart rate, you've, you will have 30 to, 45, 30 to 45 gallons of blood pumped through your veins. And catch this, that required zero conscious effort on your part. You didn't one single time think to yourself, uh, mutate cells, blink eyes, beat heart. That just happened. And if that doesn't cause a sense of wonder within you about a God who created all of that to work, which even if you don't believe that God did all that, it should still cause in you some wonder. Don't you think? Like, even if you believe in an evolutionary creation, the fact that we ended up on this planet at all still requires a tremendous amount of faith. And if I could even push you on that point a little bit, natural selection can only happen if an organism has already had genetic code in order to select. Right? Otherwise, there's nothing to select. The very term natural selection implies that there's something to choose. So where'd that initial code come from in order to choose it? Let me ask it this way, which requires more faith, that billions of cells can create new ones within a matter of 30 minutes, and that just happened, or that an intelligent designer caused it? Childlike faith, wonder, awe. Now, that being said, one of the things that you never ever have to wonder about is Christ's love for you. You can be in awe that he loves you, but you never have to wonder if he loves you. 
Romans 5.8 says it like this, but God demonstrates his own love for you, for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'll come back to that. Number two, to be childlike in our faith means we have to have a complete honesty before God. Complete honesty. Not so much in terms of our speech, And like George Washington, you've never told a lie. But moreover, complete honesty is in who you are. Or to say it another way, are you authentic? Are you genuine? You want to grow up in your faith? You want to be childlike in your faith? Then you have to have some authenticity. You have to be honest. This changes as kids get older, as they're exposed to criticism and shame and an awareness that not everybody's going to like them for who they are, they change. You've changed. You try to hide things. People want to control how other people see them and think about them. And sadly, this is happening earlier and earlier these days. Kids are getting much older, younger in our world. They're exposed to things that children should never have to be exposed to. Certain visual things and scenes and language on television, video games, the internet. Kids have seen and heard so much so soon. Makes me nervous, not just for my kids, but for y'all's kids as well. Realize USA Today just put out an article saying the first exposure to pornography is now age six. Used to be age nine. You know what grade your kid is at age six? Kindergarten. Think about that. If you're not teaching your kid about sex, the devil certainly will. And I would contend that's not the definition of sex you'd want your kids to have. Uh, If you're in sixth grade, the expectation in the dating world is that you'll send a naked picture of yourself to your boyfriend or girlfriend. Sixth grade. You still think your kid needs a smartphone? Oh, I can monitor what they're doing, Pastor. You so sure about that? You know, there's apps that can delete pictures the moment that they're seen. There's other apps uh, that will allow anybody to access the microphone and the camera without the person knowing it. Your kid has no idea what's being seen or heard based off of their phone. Furthermore, there's apps that will tell you the exact GPS of the phone. And so, yeah, you can know where your kids are at, but so can anybody else who can get into the phone. That should make you nervous. Well, how am I supposed to get a hold of them? What if there's an emergency? I don't know, get a flip phone. Something that you can't get apps. Are there still pagers? Can you get a two-way pager? Do, like That was big back in the day. Get something like that. How are they supposed to fit in? That's what you're really wondering. All the other kids have phones. That's what you're worried about? You show me in the Bible the verse that says you're supposed to allow your kids to fit in. I'll show you a dozen that say you're not of this world. You're supposed to be different than the rest of the world. I know it's difficult to hear, but that doesn't make it any less true. Kids don't need to be adults so soon. Oh, for the sweetness of a small child. Because little children are honest. When they're happy, they laugh. When they're sad, they cry. If they're anything like my daughters, they do both within 12 seconds of each other. And you're like, what happened? This mood changed so quickly awesome that that they they probably get that from me too (laughs) embarrassing Uh, but you know where you stand with a child and the idea is that we're supposed to come with complete honesty to god 
childlike honesty. The image that Jesus is speaking of is childlike honesty. Don't be a hypocrite. Be yourself. Be truthful. That's what it means to become like a child. I'm coaching my son's third and fourth grade basketball team this year, and it's basically it's just three-on-three, three, half-court, nothing amazing is good because at that age, hovering is what tends to happen. Wherever the ball is, it's like a little campfire, and everybody's like trying to warm up. I'm open, I'm open. You're not open. Get away from... But uh, even the very first pat practice afterwards on the drive home, Leighton says to me, we probably won't be very good, huh, Dad? And I was like, well, buddy, there's some kids that got some things to work on, you know. Uh, but I reminded him, under my tutelage, you kids will grow from boys into gladiators. That's what we're going after. But uh, kids are honest. They know. They can look around and see it up to a certain age. They don't try and hide anything. What a refreshing change this must have been for our Lord to play with honest, trusting, fun-loving little children instead of pessimistic, cynical adults who all just want to engage in some sort of theological argument and debate. I mean, these kids weren't worried about what clothes Jesus was wearing. And they didn't care what kind of people Jesus hung out with or what version of the Old Testament scrolls Jesus was reading from. These little children weren't busy picketing the Roman Empire and refusing to go to Disney because of their agenda. They were just having a good time engaging with Jesus. And so was he. I'm quite sure that Jesus had a great time laughing and playing. And when they lined up to play dodgeball, Jesus didn't take it easy on anybody. He chucked that mug right at their face. So he could raise them from the dead if something happened. You know, it's like just it's good for them to complete honesty, childlike faith. Number three, complete humility. Complete humility. You have to be humble. And again, this is like an idea of complete helplessness. Kids can't care for themselves. When they're little, they're expecting you to care for them. And you've got to do everything that you can to make sure they're buckled into the car seat. So you've got to do the little strap at the restaurant in the high chair and primarily just to make sure they don't climb out of the high chair at the restaurant, but you, you got to make sure that your kids are, are in the store and you're keeping an eye on them so they don't wander off and you don't, uh, the, the kids don't have a choice in the matter, but are you trusting God in order to provide for you the way your child trusts in you to provide for them? Side note, many parents are willing to let someone else take their children into the presence of Jesus, but it would be far more effective for the child and beneficial for the parents if we could lead the parents into the presence of Jesus at the same time. You can see how closely related the ministry to children and the larger ministry of evangelism are for us in this church. That's why we're passionate about creating a safe place for your kids to hear about Jesus and develop resources for you to take home for the other 167 hours of the week that you're going to spend with your kids. It's also why we take the idea of who we allow to volunteer back there very seriously, because we don't want disciples who try and hinder little children from coming to Jesus. Matter of fact, one of the most terrifying verses within all of Scripture that you'll ever read is Matthew 18.6. 
says, but if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's Jesus preaching that. That ain't some writing from a disciple. Jesus said that. Had a ton of people ask me, how can a good God allow something so wicked to happen to a good little child? Don't know. What I do know, it ain't looking good for the people that caused the sin to happen. And as an adult, are you relying on God the same way your kids rely on you? Two simple ways to figure that out. The easiest way, look at your checkbook. Are you sacrificially giving to God? If not, you're probably not trusting Him with childlike faith. If you've been at the church for any time at all, you know that I like to say that you should give away 10% of your income to a local church. And I've said it, I truly mean it. If you think this church is only after your money, then give your 10% somewhere else. I don't care. I don't need your money. But I do want you to have the blessing that the Bible promises when you tithe, when you give a tenth part, that's what that word means. And so I think you should give 10% of your income away to a local church. And then you should save 10% of your income, and you should live on 80%. It's a good number for you to try and get to. 10, 10, and 80. It causes and shows humility. You know what else shows humility in terms of childlike faith? Fear. What are you afraid of? You know, you're only born with two fears. The fear of falling, like being dropped, and the fear of loud noises. Science has shown that that's the only thing kids are afraid of when they're born. So on some level, at some point, somebody taught you and your kids and whoever else every other fear that you could possibly have. Which means if it's learned, then it can be unlearned. You don't have to be afraid of anything. Uh, We talked in Huddle this morning, and Tony said that uh, action will eliminate your fears. That if you start doing something, that's how you can um, not be afraid anymore. What are you afraid of? You afraid that God won't take care of you? You afraid that God won't take care of your kids? Shows a lack of humility. So here's where we are. If you want to be childlike in your faith, not childish, then uh, you've got to have a sense of wonder and awe for who God is and all that he's done. And it, in turn, you've got to be honest about who God is and who you are. Like, like, you should figure that out. Who am I? What am I good at? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And when you figure that out, the only natural response when you understand that God has a plan and a purpose for your life and He wants to use you for your joy and His glory, the only response to that humility is like thinking, well, God, what? why would you choose me and create me and love me? And the reason I wanted to start with that, understanding this idea of honesty and humility is because I think that gives us a good working definition of faith. Faith is such a weird church term. And needlessly so. Because how many times have you ever asked a question and some well-meaning Christian says, well, you just got to have faith. Well, thanks, George Michael, but that's not exactly entirely true. Because you know that faith isn't some sort of force. It's not a formula. It's not some kind of magical spell that you have to conjure up. Childlike faith is a confidence God is who He said He is and He will do what He's promised to do. You can write that down. 
Childlike faith is a confidence. God is who He said He is. He will promise He will do what He promised that He will do. It begs the question, well, who's God? What does He promise to do? And God shows up first to Adam and Eve, but He shows up later to a guy named Abraham and reveals to him His name. He says, fear not, I am your shield, your very great reward. That's Genesis 15, 1. And God uses an interesting word there for I am. It's literally translated, I am who I am. You want to talk about paradox? I am. I always was. I always will be. And when Moses is asked by God to go into a foreign kingdom and rescue a group of people out of slavery, he's asked the question to God, well, who do I tell them to sent me? What's God say? I am. Tell them I am sent you. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who is and is to come. That's who sent you. So if that's who God is, an eternal being, then what did God promise to do? And again, way back with Abraham, God promises to bless the world. And throughout the coming centuries, he reveals and clarifies what that blessing will be. Until we come to the Apostle John, who writes the most famous verse in all of Scripture that tells us what the blessing is in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, he sent his son Jesus. Whoever believes in him will get the gift of eternal life. So God has promised you a gift. It's the gift of life forever. Again, it's paradoxical. It's incomprehensible. Eternity can't be comprehended and understood. Yet that's the reason you need to be childlike. Have a childlike faith. Children know exactly how to receive a gift. I've been through nine Christmases now with at least one child. And you know what I've never heard? You know what kids never said to me? Well, Father, I appreciate your generosity, but I'm not worthy of this gift. I don't deserve it. Take it back. Of course you don't deserve it, you little punk. It's why it's called a gift. I'm giving it to you, not because you deserve it. No kid has ever said that. Kids know exactly what to do with a gift. They rip that mug open and violently grab it and accept it exactly. There's no question of whether or not this gift is mine. Of course it's mine. I have my name on it. And according to Jesus, that's how we should accept His gift. The gift of eternal life. It pains me to know there are people who have trusted in the Lord for years and still struggle with this idea of the assurance of personal salvation. Because in their minds, they still think that they have to do something, some kind of works-based relationship in order to earn the love of God. They have to do this and that, thus and so, in order to earn His approval. And they haven't simply trusted in the promise of 1 John 5. says, These things I write to you, to those of you that believe in the name of Jesus, that you know, that you know that you have eternal life. Just accept the gift of God. Of course you don't deserve it. None of us do. Myself included. Now, besides that, on the other end of the spectrum, there's a lot of people who like to claim that God is going to give you something He's never promised to give. Andy Stanley says it this way, an entire generation is abandoning faith because the church assigned God's name to promises God never made. Listen to me now. God's never promised you to cure every disease. God's never promised to make you rich. 
God's never promised that nothing bad is ever going to happen or that you'll never have to experience some sort of very difficult, painful, dark, evil, wicked things. He promised to give you life forever. John 3.16. He promised that He'd always be with you so you should never have fear. Deuteronomy 31.6, Matthew 28.20. And He's promised that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28. So let me wrap it up like this. I understand that not every one of you had a parent who was godly. And so when the Bible talks about God being a father, it's hard for us to get behind that. And I'm limited in my illustrations based on the experience that I've had, which my parents have always been there. Whenever I had a decision to make, I almost always went, in every case I could think of, I almost always went to my dad. Buying a car. What do you think? It's got a lot of miles. You think we can, was it a good deal? Buying a house. How she looked, Dad? What's the foundation like? What do I need to be looking for? That looks like cast iron in that. Is that good? Is it bad? When building a house, you think you're going to help me figure out how to side this mug and do everything else and learn how to change an oil or change uh, brakes on a car and replace things? One of my earliest memories as a child I'm like maybe five or six years old, and I remember standing in a bathroom. My dad's trying to change the little O-rings on the handle of the faucet, and he forgot to shut off the water. And he popped the handle on the faucet, and water shooting out everywhere, and I'm soaking wet. I have no idea this isn't normal. I'm like, this is a weird kind of way to do that. They should have thought through this better when they designed this whole thing. And uh, here's what I'm getting at. You might want to write this down. Spiritual maturity is not measured by what you ask your dad for, what you're asking God for. Spiritual maturity is measured by what you trust God with. Spiritual maturity isn't by asking God for some big, grand, audacious thing. Spiritual maturity is measured by what you're trusting God with. Are you trusting Him with everything? Of course ask God for big, audacious things, but do you trust Him with your future? Do you trust Him with your money? Do you trust Him with your kids? Maybe more importantly, do you trust Him with His grace? That you don't have to earn His love. He loves you because He made made you. Do you trust that He's good? That's faith. Believing in who God is. Trusting in what He promised to do. That He sent His Son to this earth in order to bridge the gap that separated you from Him. And when Jesus hung on the cross with His arms spread out, it's exactly what He was doing, making a way for you to be able to come to God, your Father. That's faith. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this free gift of salvation through Your Son, Jesus. God, it's a paradoxical thing that we're trying to explore this idea that we have to be like a child in our faith, trusting in who you are. And sometimes our experiences don't always line up with believing that you're good. God, I know there are some painful, deep, difficult, dark, wicked things that have happened in this room. And it's only natural to wonder why those things could happen. And so we have to be like a child and trust in your word that all things work together for good that one day you're going to make all things right, that you never intended the world to have sin in it, 
you created the potential for it and we chose wrong but in return God one day you're going to make all things right and we're believing that and we're having faith in that and we trust in Jesus that because he lived a perfect life we don't have to and because he died a death that was meant for us we might die physically on this earth but we're going to live forever with you when we trust in his name And you can leave here this morning with that assurance that this free gift is given to you as well. Trust in your heart. Jesus is who he said he is. God's son. And he did what he promised to do. Save your soul. You can just say, God, I believe in Jesus. Forgive my sin. Make me new. God, help each person leave this place new, full of life, free with the understanding that it's only because of Jesus and His Holy Spirit living in them. We praise You, we thank You. In Jesus' name, amen.